Welcome everybody. This is the Oxford Psychedelic Society. This event is organized jointly by Underverge, which is a podcast platform, and the Oxford Psychedelic Society. My name is Ali Reza Omidvar, and I'm the event manager for the society. Uh, we've had the privilege of having Rupert three times before, so thank you, Rupert, for accepting our invitation. And thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot, I'm just going to pass the mic back to Rupert. Um, but try to be quiet because we want everyone else to be able to hear in the back as well. So that's, that's everything from me. All right. Thank you, Ali, for inviting me back. Some familiar faces and lots of new faces. Nice to, nice to see you all. So I had to ask Ali when I came in what the, what the title of this talk was um, and apparently it's Know Thyself which I probably gave to Ali about two months ago because that gives me kind of license to go in almost any direction because I don't like to prepare before a meeting. So I'll, I'll say something briefly about Know Thyself and which is really the, the essence of the, the perennial, non-dual understanding. And then we'll uh, perhaps do a, a short guided meditation. And then we'll open it up for conversation and you can ask about, <coughs> about anything you like. So the, the perennial non-dual understanding is the understanding that underlies and is the the source of all the great religious and spiritual traditions and if we were to uh, take the, the last um, let's say 3,000 years of uh, spiritual and religious um, doctrine teaching understanding and condense it into a, distill it into a, a single phrase it might sound something like this uh, peace and happiness are the very nature of our being and we share our being with everyone and everything If we have understood this, we have really understood the essence of all the great religious and spiritual traditions. Nothing else need be understood. All that is necessary would be to, to lead a life to the best of our ability in a way that is consistent with this understanding. So this understanding is, it, it's divided into, there are two parts to it, one, one part relating to our inner life of thoughts and feelings, and the other part relating to our exterior life, our relationship with objects, others, and nature. In relation to our inner life, the perennial non-dual understanding says peace and happiness are the very nature of our being 
and in relation to our external experience, we share our being with everyone and everything. This um, felt sense of our shared being is what we commonly refer to as love. So another way to express it would be simply to say that love is the, the natural condition of all relationships. So you might object and say, well, if peace and happiness are the nature of my being, and likewise love, why do I not experience them all the time? After all, my being, myself, is always present. If its nature is peace, happiness and love, why do we not always experience it? And the answer is simply this, that whilst everybody experiences their self or their being all the time, not everybody knows their being clearly. And it is this lack of clear self-knowledge that is responsible for the veiling of the peace and happiness that is our nature on the inside and uh, the sharing of being the love which is the natural condition of all relationship on the outside. And it is for this reason that self-knowledge is really uh, um, the essence of all the great wisdom traditions. It is for this reason that the words know thyself from which the title of this evening was taken was carved above the entrance of the temple of Apollo in Delphi and as such stand as an invitation at the dawn of Western civilization implying that this this knowledge of ourself, the, the, the recognition of the nature of being, is the most important knowledge and the knowledge upon which all other knowledge must be based. Why do we not know our being clearly? Because our being is our being or our self is so thoroughly mixed up with the content of our experience that whilst everybody knows their self all the time everybody's sense of their self or sense of their being is um, mixed with the qualities of experience and thus people really rarely recognize the essential nature of their being. So the first step that most traditions take, certainly the first step that the Vedantic and Tantric traditions take, <coughs> is this exploration of the nature of our self. 
of our being, the one we refer to when we say I or I am. don't want to uh, talk philosophy to you. I want to conduct this experiment with you. If uh, somebody else tells us the nature of our being, it's not a lot of help to us. It may serve as an inspiration to us, but only our own recognition of our being can really make any difference. So... I suggest at least to begin with that we keep our eyes closed. Uh, it's not essential, but I would at least start like this. And ask yourself a, a simple... First, first of all, just, just allow your experience to be exactly as it is from moment to moment without any impulse to change it in any way. And be sure to include the full spectrum of your experience. Thoughts, images, memories, emotions, sensations of the body such as the tingling of your feet on the ground or your legs on the chair or your hands on your lap and perceptions of the world sights if your eyes are open sounds, tastes, textures, smells and so on just be open without preference to the full spectrum of your experience without wanting to change anything. ask yourself the question what is it that knows or is aware of my experience but don't allow yourself to answer this question with a word 
whatever it is that knows or is aware of our experience is what we refer to as I. I know my thoughts. I am aware of feelings and sensations. I perceive the world. So this question is another way of saying who am I really? Just ask yourself the question what is it that knows or is aware of my experience? Don't think about this. Allow the question to take you in your experience to that which is aware of your thoughts, feelings, sensations and so on. Whatever it is that knows our, our thoughts, images and memories is obviously not itself a thought, an image or a memory. What is that? Whatever it is that is aware of our feelings and bodily sensations is obviously not itself a feeling or a sensation. What is that? Whatever it is that perceives the world is obviously not itself a perception. What is that? 
when we walk outside down in the street or in nature all the objects that we see are rendered visible by the light of the sun ask yourself the question what is it that renders my experience knowable how come there is experience it is that knows or is aware of our experience is not itself an experience it cannot be found in the realm of objective experience by objective experience I mean thoughts, images, feelings sensations, perceptions and so on so don't allow your attention to land on anything that is known or experienced we are looking for the knower not the known for the experiencer not the experienced So the first, the first step we take is a, a path of negation, the via negativa. 
I am not my thoughts, feelings, sensations and perceptions. I am that which is aware of them. I am the fact of simply being aware, or awareness itself. taken a step back from the content of our experience. Previously we believed it is I as this mind and body who is aware of the world. Now we take a step back so to speak and we realize it is I awareness that is aware of the, the body, the mind and the world. So this is the, the first great recognition. What I essentially am is simply the fact of being aware or awareness itself. But this is not yet the recognition that is traditionally referred to as awakening or enlightenment or salvation. What is traditionally referred to as awakening or Enlightenment is not just the recognition of our essential nature as awareness, but the recognition of the of the nature of the awareness that we are. What are its qualities? So notice, first of all, that whilst the content of your experience changes all the time, thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, that which is aware of them remains the same. Whatever it is that is aware of your current experience is exactly the same as whatever it was that was aware of your experience five minutes ago, five years ago, 
when you were five-year-old children. The content of experience is always changing. The awareness or consciousness with which our experience is known never changes. second thing to notice is that whilst our thoughts, feelings, sensations and perceptions are always appearing and disappearing, coming and going, starting and stopping, the awareness with which they are known remains continually present throughout all these changes. Awareness is like a, a steady light that knows or illumines the changing content of experience. unchanging and ever-present. Notice that our essential self of simply being aware or awareness itself is not just the, the knower of experience, but it is the medium within which all experience arises. instance notice that the sound of the rain takes place in exactly the same space of awareness as do your thoughts and feelings.
as such, awareness could be likened to a space, not a physical space, a, a knowing space. Feel that the sound of the rain is as close and as intimate to you as are your thoughts and feelings. no experience takes place at a distance from awareness. All experience is equally intimate. Notice that just as the physical space of a room is never disturbed by what takes place within it, so likewise the aware space, the knowing space of awareness within which our thoughts, feelings, sensations and so on take place is never itself disturbed by the content of experience. It is as such imperturbable, undisturbable. Hence its nature is peace. Not a peace that is derived from the content of experience. Not a peace that depends upon what is or is not taking place in the mind. A peace that is prior to and independent of the content of experience.
notice that the fact of being aware or awareness itself is never enhanced or diminished by experience. That is, no experience adds anything to or removes anything from the space of awareness in which it appears and with which it is known. is utterly intimately one with all experience and at the same time free or independent of it. It does not stand to gain or lose anything from experience. It is, as such, whole, complete, <coughs> inherently fulfilled. <coughs> lacking nothing, wanting nothing, needing nothing, holding on to nothing. its nature is said to be happiness. Complete absence of lack or dissatisfaction. The ease of being.
what is what is traditionally referred to as meditation or prayer is this return to our essential self return to our essential being most of the time we are lost in the content of experience meditation or prayer is simply to come back from our happiness seeking adventure in the world to let go of our exclusive fascination with the content of experience and to return to ourself or our being traditionally referred to as enlightenment or awakening is not some extraordinary exotic experience in fact it's the simplest experience there is just the recognition of the nature of our being ever present unchanging inherently peaceful and unconditionally fulfilled.
Okay, let's begin our conversation if there's anything you'd like to ask about. Not intimately one with, yeah, and, and at the same time free of, yes, yeah, exactly, yes, right. yes. Um, and I would suggest that you can arrive at a state where you accept whatever circumstances arise, um, even uh, circumstances that are deeply unpleasant um, or undesirable. Um, yet, nonetheless, like there are clearly situations that demand change, um, obvious. Um, situations like a house burning, for example. You should put out the fire. Um, but there are also more subtle situations um, where it's unclear whether we should just accept the circumstances or change them in some way. Um, uh, you know, uh, for example, whether we should stay in a job or leave a job. Um, so, I guess, how does one avoid the sort of pitfall of um, just using this practice as a way to accept things um, in order to maintain some sense of inertia rather than um, creating change where it's needed. Yes, to, to use this practice in order to avoid, uh, to, to maintain the state of inertia would, would be an example of the, the ego or the apparently separate self appropriating the non-dual understanding and using it to perpetuate itself. So there's, there's, there's no implication in this understanding that we should necessarily accept everything. As you, as you rightly say, there are plenty of examples where it's not appropriate to accept experience. It, it's more a question of uh, on whose behalf does our resistance to experience arise? it arises on behalf of the safety or the well-being of the body then it is perfectly legitimate to to resist the the house on fire um, an illness uh, the experience of pain um, if we didn't resist the experience of hunger we would have all starved to death long ago uh, hunger is it, it's a hunger arises uh, on behalf of the body, on behalf of the well-being of the body. And it's appropriate to respond to it. Uh, but in between the <clears throat> in between the body and awareness, there is um there is an entity, it's called the ego or the separate self, which is um derives its its um, its reality 
from awareness, but it is mixed with the content of experience. Uh, the analogy I often use, I'm sure you've heard me use it, is the analogy of the actor John Smith who plays the part of King Lear. So John Smith in this case represents pure consciousness, awareness. King Lear is the part he plays. So the character King Lear is a mixture of John Smith plus a series of thoughts, actions and relationships. So the separate self, what is normally called the separate self or the ego, is a mixture of the, the true self, awareness, plus thoughts, feelings, actions and relationships. And this, this um, entity that is derived from awareness plus the content of experience is like King Lear. It's an illusory entity. But like all illusions, it has a reality to it. What is the reality of King Lear? John Smith. What is illusory about John Lear? His actions and relationships. So the separate self is, it has a reality to it, pure consciousness. But the mixing of consciousness with the limitations of experience creates this ego or separate self. So it's only the resistances that arise on behalf of the separate self that are problematic. So let's say, for instance, take your example of being in a job that you didn't like. Uh, I, again, I would suggest it was perfectly reasonable if you, if you felt that your work was not... Um, a vehicle in your life that enabled you to express the qualities that are inherent in your true nature, the qualities of peace, joy, love, beauty, and so on, that it would be legitimate to change your work so, as, so that your activities were better able to express this understanding. That would be a, a change which was initiated not by the ego or the separate self. On the contrary, it would be a change that was initiated by this recognition and which seeks to bring this recognition out into, the, into society in some form. Are they all linked together? Or yes, yes. Well, so it begin, and yeah, I might very wind up just asking the last, but it begins with a question, but often basically a Buddhist perspective. Right? And the first one sort of would be, would require, I think, an explanation of Buddhist praxis, but it would basically explain how, from a Buddhist perspective, you enter more and more and more refined, almost unspeakably refined layers of pure consciousness, completely undiluted, unalloyed. Into sort of deep, without any reference to body experience of any sort, uh, sort of formless genres, which are nevertheless considered to be unsatisfactory uh, for reasons I can explain and I wouldn't want to hear your answers of. But the reason why this question matters to me is because it, the reasons why they're unsatisfactory derive from Buddhist cosmology, which again I can discuss with you. And the problem with the Buddhist cosmology is that it leads me to an experience of complete existential horror complete 
the spiritual distress and urgency to make it so that I can be sure that upon the degradation of the body there will be no remnant of experience whatsoever, no trace of objects could possibly arise again. So that that's sort of depending on how much I can go into any of those three, is the, the, the last one's the main thing. So I guess really the final question would be, if I can't go into detail about all of those, presumably on your path towards uh, peace, there were false summits, which had the taste of gnosis, but with a lingering affect of, of horror or disgust or despair or, or experiences of such sort. And I, I suppose I would, wouldn't mind knowing, could you describe those in any way? Can you remember what they were like in any yes. way? The false summits would be any peace that was dependent on the content of your experience. So you, 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 you go on your summer holiday, you arrive on your Caribbean beach, you're sitting in your deck chair and you think ah this is real peace and then someone comes along and sits on the deck chair next to you with their ghetto blaster and you get upset about it you realize it's not real peace it's conditional peace it felt like real peace but it was peace that was fragile easily disturbed it wasn't the imperturbable peace of your true nature it was the, the, it was peaceful circumstances that gave you the illusion of real peace it's a slightly crude example but the, 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 these would be the false summits that the peace or the joy that was in some ways derived from the content of experience and if our peace or our happiness is dependent on the content of experience we can be absolutely certain that sooner or later the content the relationship the state of health the bank account whatever it is is going to change or disappear and if our peace and our happiness is dependent on it they will also disappear with it and we'll experience sorrow or, or suffering so these would be the false summits the the uh, the peace or the happiness that was conditional. Well, did you not have an experience, strong experiences of contemplation of the world of experience as the sort of sick, so in the Samkhya Sutras, so 300, 400 BC, they describe Prakriti, matter, as the sort of dancer who sort of parades in front of the self for the self's own sort of amusement and then, and then betterment, so to allow the self to have something play out in front of it and then return back to itself and, and abide in peace, right? Did you not have experiences of the world of Prakriti, of world of experience, as this horrifying, entangling, addictive, and essentially sick thing? And, and did you not have that kind of spiritual experience? Because it still, it still haunts me in, in many, many ways, right? Looking at what kind of sick game is this that is trying to entangle me in? this beautiful Caribbean beach. You know, the little ghetto bastard comes and I'm like, oh no, do I have to commit suicide in order to get out of the cycle of identifying with particular circumstances of, of, of well-being and bliss? Do you not, do you not experience that sort of, those states? Or those? 
No, I've always thought the world was an incredibly beautiful place. <laughs> doesn't mean to say that I, you know, haven't had my fair share of suffering. It doesn't mean to say that I don't see horrendous things that take place in the world. I'm not denying that. You know, look at what's taking place in Ukraine. I, I'm I'm well aware of that. But I don't see the world as essentially something sick, something to be avoided. No, I I see ultimately that the, the the ultimate reality of the world I consider to be the same ultimate reality as ourself whose nature is peace, joy, love so so no I don't I don't see the world as something that no no as, as, as I say I've I've had my fair share of... I, I've invested my happiness in objects, activities, relationships, and when those objects, activities, and relationships have disappeared or ended, I've, my happiness has disappeared and ended with them. I, so I've experienced suffering, of course. But it never, it never made me... It never made me essentially doubt the beauty of the world, no. No. <laughs> yes. And uh, my question relates to the body. So, uh, the non-dual practice is often described as the pathless path. There's not much one has to do in terms of practice. Um, but how does one translate the understanding into the body? Okay. Um, okay. Because, let let yeah. me say something about the pathless path. Um, that there are really three types of path, three types of practice in, in all the traditions. If you survey all the traditions, there are three types of practice, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Sufi. And one type of practice involves the directing of our attention towards something. If, if we are on the path of devotion, if we're a Christi Christian mystic on the path of devotion, we direct our attention towards God. If we are practicing mantra meditation in the Vedantic tradition, we direct our attention towards the mantra, or towards the breath, or towards the guru, or towards the pause between breaths, or towards a flame, or towards something, a, a, a more or less subtle object of experience. That, that's, the, that's one type, and the, the objects towards which we direct our love or attention vary enormously, but they all involve the directing of attention or love away from ourself towards the object, however refined that object may be. That's the progressive path, the traditional progressive path. I'm not arranging these practices in a hierarchy. I'm not making any qualitative um, judgment about them. That's the first kind of practice. Now the second, and, and that accounts for the vast majority of practices, 90%. And the second type of practice is the 
di what's called a direct path in which attention is or love is not directed towards an object it, it turns around so to speak and it sinks back into its source that's what we were doing in our meditation earlier it's called self-inquiry self-investigation self-abidance um, in the Christian mystical tradition the practice of the presence of God it, there are all sorts of names for it but it it doesn't involve the directing of attention it involves the sinking of attention the relaxing of attention it's called the direct path because we go directly back to our true nature we don't go to our true nature via a mantra and then back to our true nature we just go directly there that's the direct path now both of these paths um, make a concession to the separate self who is miserable uh, King Lear is miserable and his friend uh, on the traditional path his friend would give him a mantra to pay attention to because as long as he's paying attention to his mantra he's not paying attention to his daughters and the war with the French so he derives some measure of peace just because he's no longer paying attention to 10,000 things, he's paying attention to his mantra. Or his friend will say to him, no, don't pay attention to a mantra or your breath. Investigate who, who you really are. Who are you really? That's what we were doing today. And King Lear will trace his way back through the layers of his experience until this recognition, I am John Smith, takes place. That's the direct path. He goes directly back to his true nature, John Smith. Well, these are the, but both of those practices make a concession to King Lear. They're both practices for King Lear. But who is King Lear? Is he a person? Is he an entity? No. He's an illusion. There is no character called King Lear. The only character there, the only person there is John Smith. And John Smith is not in need of spiritual instruction or practice because his nature is peace. So both these two practices make a concession to the separate self the ego they give that ego something to do and then the pathless path and the, 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 the you could be you could the non-dual understanding could uh, spans all three paths it's not just the pathless path but the pathless path is in, in a way it's the highest path it's not really a path it makes no concession to King Lear. It doesn't acknowledge King Lear. He's an illusion. Why give an illusion something to do, a practice? Wouldn't any practice, even the highest practice, wouldn't it perpetuate King Lear's illusion that he is a separate entity? So this practice doesn't end with reality. It doesn't end with the one infinite being. It starts with it and it stays there. Now that can't really be said to be a practice. Mm. It's just starting with reality and staying there. Okay. So how does that understanding then translate to the body? That would be kind of a tantric approach. Okay. Because in my own case, um, self-inquiry took me so far and then that understanding was not the felt experience okay. of my body until okay. I sort of right. connected to the body. And okay, so let's take the middle path because that's that's what I'm most I, I, I 
really what I tend to speak about is the direct path and the pathless path. So you're quite right, the direct path is not the full story. It's, um, I sometimes say that if you were to, to write a book in 12 chapters about the spiritual path, the spiritual journey, self-inquiry is the chapter one and chapter two. Um, and e even the, the recognition of our true nature is so-called enlightenment is not the end of the path it's just the recognition of our true nature and in order to bring this about we turn away from the content of experience that's what we did this evening the via negativa uh, neti neti I am not this I'm not my thoughts I'm that which is aware of my thoughts I'm not my feelings and sensations I'm that which is aware of my feelings and sensations and, uh, the path of negation and this brings us to the recognition, first, I am awareness, and second, the nature of the awareness that I am, ever-present, unchanging, inherently peaceful, unconditionally happy. However, it's then necessary, and this, this is the answer to your question now, it's then necessary to turn back towards the content of experience from which we previously turned away, turn back towards our thoughts, turn back towards our emotions, turn back towards the way we feel the body, and turn back to the way we perceive the world, and realign all these realms of our experience with our new understanding. What is our new understanding? I am not this temporary, finite, limited self made out of thoughts, feelings, activities, memories, and so on. I am this open, empty, luminous space of awareness. So in the tantric approach, we start with this recognition I am the open empty space of awareness and we, we, we allow the experience of the body to come to our attention and just like I said when we were when we were meditating and the, it was raining and I said something like uh, see clearly that the sound of the rain takes place in the same space of awareness as do our thoughts and feelings. Well, the same is true of our bodily sensations. Just just close your eyes for a moment, everyone. Make this experiential, not philosophical. And feel, first of all, understand, but more importantly, feel I am the open, empty space of awareness within which the entire content of my experience takes place. The sound of the siren, the sensation of my feet on the floor, whatever thoughts or feelings may be present, they're all taking place in the space of awareness. So you feel that your body, and in fact our, our only experience of the body, if our eyes are closed, are, is the current sensation or the current flow of sensations. You feel that this flow of sensations is taking place in the space of awareness. Awareness is not located in the sensation. The sensation is taking place in awareness. Now, Ali, keep your eyes closed and without reference to the past, imagine this is the first experience you've ever had. 
your newborn infant, you're experiencing the current sensation, but you have no idea even that it is the sensation of a body. You haven't opened your eyes yet, you're just experiencing the current sensation. Now tell us about the sensation, how would you describe it? Or let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Um, does the sensation have a clearly defined border? Try to drop the label of the body. Yeah, but by sensations, I mean your your inner experience of the body. Yes, but try to drop the label of the body because without reference to thought or memory, in other words, without reference to the past, you don't know that the current sensation is a sensation of a body. It's just a raw sensation. Mm. Now, does that sensation have a clearly defined border to it? Does it have a size? No, but it feels dense. We'll come to that in a minute. Does it, does it have an age? No. Does it have a gender? No. Does it have a weight? I'm feeling weight. Okay. Go to the experience that seems to be evidence of weight. That's the experience of your legs on the chair. Remember, you're a newborn infant. It's the first experience you've ever had. You know nothing of legs or chair, but you are experiencing the sensation. And you're right, the sensation has a certain intensity to it. But without reference to thought or memory, would you know that this intensity was evidence of weight? Does the sensation have a density to it? I would say, in, as opposed to awareness, my body... As opposed to? Awareness. Okay. My body feels dense. Are you sure it's dense rather than intense? Does the newborn infant know that its body is solid if it refers only to the current sensation? <coughs> the sensation, it's a, there's a vibration, there's a tingling, an amorphous tingling that has a certain intensity, yes. But without reference to thought, you wouldn't know that sensation was dense. Is there any part of the sensation that is not pervaded by the knowing of it? No. That knowing, that awareness is transparent, it's empty. Can you separate the sensation from the awareness in which it appears? No. Is there anything to the sensation other than the knowing of it? Is it the knowing of a sensation? Is the sensation separate from the knowing of it or is it just 
knowing, just experiencing. It's experiencing, but in kind of with different energies. So there's just experience, but there's different kind of vibrations and energies rising and falling. Yes, it, yes, it, it, it's not completely homogeneous. There are some areas where the where the the vibration is a little more intense, some areas where it's a little less intense. It's like a wave, like a pulsating wave, varying in intensity. But is there anything to it other than the knowing of it, the experiencing of it? There's just the experience. It's not even the experiencing of it, it's just experiencing. It's just knowing, just consciousness. And how dense is knowing or consciousness? Not dense. Okay. Well, now you are experiencing the body in a way that is consistent with the understanding that underlies and informs all the great religious and spiritual traditions, namely that reality is one formless, infinite, indivisible whole whose nature is consciousness or spirit or love. That's the tantric path. So, as an analogy, it's like placing the body in the ocean of awareness, just perfect. It's always there, it, but kind of exactly. To that. begin with, I started off by saying, feel that the sensation appears in awareness, like your thoughts appear in awareness. Yes. So at that stage, I was uh, um, suggest implying that the sensation was one thing, the space of awareness was another thing. The sensation was like a fish in the ocean. Yeah. As we went more deeply into the meditation and we, and we lost the distinction between the sensation and the knowing of it, the awareness of it, then the body is felt more like a current in the ocean rather than a fish in the ocean. A fish is something you can take out of the ocean. A current in the ocean, it's just ocean. It's just a movement of the water. The actual experience of the body is just a movement of consciousness. Experience of the world is a modulation of consciousness. Consciousness is all that anyone has or could ever know. Ask yourself the question now, have any of you ever known anything other than the knowing of your experience? Would it be possible to know anything other than the knowing of your experience? Has anybody, any of the eight billion of us, or to include all the animals, the eight trillion of us, not to mention the previous, has anyone, could anyone, ever know anything other than the knowing of experience? I'm taking your silence as a no. You are aware that other Separately from us. I'm yes, I'm, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that 
all there is to the reality is the content of of our finite mind that would be solipsism i'm not suggesting that our, each of our finite minds is just a tiny little subset of infinite consciousness so so yes i'm not just saying all there is is my mind i'm suggesting and the tradition suggests all there is is infinite consciousness and each of our minds is a localization of infinite consciousness but what i was trying to establish then was that all we all we as, as all our minds know all we as a limited mind know is the knowing of experience so i'm just trying to um validate this um this perennial non-dual understanding that suggests that consciousness is the re- ultimate reality it's not such a strange proposition given that consciousness is the only thing which is of course not a thing that anybody has ever known nobody has ever found anything other than consciousness or the knowing of experience so f- far from being an, a kind of abstract metaphysical proposition it's actually rooted in our experience what 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 is abstract is to suggest that there is something outside consciousness namely matter that's how matter is defined the stuff that exists outside consciousness when well, nobody's ever found that stuff um, i just got to go but i want to say thank you that's fine no, not at all <laughs> thank you for <laughs> I, yes it seems that a lot of our society works off of the idea of like egging on the separate self and that a lot of the systems we've created self-perpetuate by working that stress that comes with the with the separate self and like using attachments to make quote-unquote progress and I'm wondering if you think it uh, worthy a possible a duty um, thing to do to try to reorganize our society in a way that doesn't make that absolutely absolutely yeah I think that is the, the best possible way one could spend one's life it's the greatest contribution one could make to humanity when look, look look around at the remember the two fundamental understandings of the perennial non-dual philosophy peace and happiness are our nature and we share our being with everyone and everything in other words we are one not just with each other but with all animals and with the world look around at the extent of the uh, sorrow and unhappiness and despair people feel on the inside and the conflict people feel on the outside T- take ukraine would it be possible for what is taking place for, for 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 what is taking place in ukraine to happen if the perpetrators understood and felt that they were one with everyone that they were the same being that they shared their being with someone of a, who had a different political opinion or was of a different culture or a different nationality or 
would it be possible to behave in that way? No. It's not, it's not possible to hurt another being that you consider to be yourself. That's why we don't like to hurt people we love, because that's what love is, the feeling that, that we are one. We only like to hurt people that we don't feel we are one with. We only like to hurt the other. So, so yes, that, that there can be no greater contribution to humanity than to express this understanding. And I don't mean the way I'm expressing it. There are, there are many, many ways it can be expressed. But yes, I would suggest that was the, the greatest contribution one could make to society. It, yes, it, it, it could be done through art. Uh, I would suggest that this understanding is the, the source of all really great art. But not necessarily. It could be done through, through science, through politics. It, I, it should be done in every... You know, it, it, if, if only artists expressed this understanding, it wouldn't get very far. We, you know, that there should be politicians that understand what we're speaking of. The politicians may be above all else. But not just the politicians, the scientists. But, but yet, yeah, art would be one way. I, 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 would, I would suggest that's the ultimate purpose of art, is to bring this understanding in a non-conceptual way into society. That's what, what Cezanne said, the purpose of my painting is to give people a taste of nature's eternity, a taste of the ever-present reality that underlies and is expressed in all of nature. Yes, you too. And so the jump lies in if that is the method by which you arrive at this understanding, then how is that understanding um, to be true for all things and for all other beings? And uh, well, yeah, that's my first. It's true that this understanding is initiated by by a person. Why? Simply because we all feel that we are limited individual people. And so we, we start our investigation where we are. But if we, if we um, trace our way back, discarding every element of our experience that is not essential to us, we just arrive at the fact of being, or the fact of being aware. And as being is divested of all the qualities that it derives, from the content of experience, it stands revealed as unlimited because all the apparent limitations 
of being are derived from the the the, the um, temporary elements of experience. If if being is divested of its limitations, it stands revealed as infinite. And how many infinite beings can there be? But I, the, how am I to know that sort of being is the being of other things? Do you see that this is, is the, the gap? How how? Uh, what makes you think it's not? You see, you see, you're starting. You're starting from the presumption that it's not, and asking yes, for for. Yes, but okay, but as that subjective point of view, trace your way back, recognize the unlimited nature of being. That's possible. That's within your capacity to recognize that the being that well, you are. Well, how if it was unlimited? How could you call it your own? If, if it's unlimited, it no longer belongs to you as a person. It's been divested of all your personal qualities and characteristics, and, and it just stands revealed as infinite being, or unlimited being. So if, if we arrive at that and say, okay, the, 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 the fundamental nature of being, not my being, the fundamental nature of being is unlimited. Why not start with that recognition? Because that's true. That's true in our experience. And then ask the question, what validity is there to the belief that being is is divided and numerous? After all, if, if every object if every existing object had its own being, when that object disappeared, where would its being go? What would it dissolve into? When you have a, a, a cube of ice in a bucket of water, the, the cube of ice dissolves, it goes into the water. It doesn't, it doesn't become non-existent. It, so when an existing object vanishes, if its being was attached to it as, a, as an object, then when the object disappeared, its being would go. But into what would it go? It would have to go into a container that, was, that could accommodate it. I would suggest that container is being. And that existence, which I'm sure you know means to stand out of, ex sistere, to stand out of, that, that every existent object is, is a is an appearance of infinite being but never actually has a status of its own in other words in the ultimate analysis there are no independently existing objects or selves there's just being from which everyone and everything derives its apparently independent existence Why does it appear that there are objects? Because there are subjects. Objects only appear from the localized perspective of a subject. You can't have an object without a subject. You can't have one side of a coin. So I would suggest that reality, which is a, a whole and indivisible, divides itself into subject and object. 
and objects are only objects only appear as objects from the localized perspective of the separate subject of experience and you can't just as you can't have a separate subject of experience without an object likewise you can't have objective experience without a subject to know it